0: I'm Kate Northrup.
1: And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business.
0: Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living.
1: Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike doing a solo episode. I believe this is the first solo episode in however many episodes we have done of the Kate and Mike show of just Mike. Our whole family, besides me at this moment in time, have been a little under the weather. So Kate could not be on today's show. And we had Jason scheduled, and so we just went with it. Jason Rosario is our guest today on the Kate and Mike show. He is the executive producer and the host of Yahoo original web series, Dear Men, which explores the evolution of manhood. In 2017, he founded The Lives of Men as a vehicle for Black and Latino men to explore healthier frameworks of masculinity while serving as a resource as they navigate various life stages. So as a motivational speaker and media personality, Jason Talks often focus on the intersection of self-actualization, identity, and masculinity with a unique blend of style, culture, education, and spirituality. His aim is to inspire, activate, and nurture the development of well-rounded men. He is a graduate of NYU Stern School of Business and came from finance background and then started this website and this kind of this movement called Lives of Men. One of my favorite quotes that he actually has on his website We want to be the compass that helps men navigate their lives journey through manhood. So I was talking to Kate because she was feeling a little bit better today. And I was like, do you want to come on here? And she goes, why don't you and Jason just actually have a chat about dudes? So I thought it was fantastic, the conversation. And for the lives of men, just a little bit about that. We did talk about his organization, but it's a social impact creative agency and diversity accelerator. They create content and strategic initiatives to help redefine, shape, modern masculinity while advocating for greater gender racial economic and social equity we invite you to walk with us so i loved having jason on this episode we were connected through noah levy our friend who lives in new york and i started watching jason's show dear men back in earlier this year in 2019 is when it came out it was eight episodes and you can find it on a Roku or Yahoo News if you just type in his name. I love the episodes. I highly recommend spending some time going through them. They're not very long 15 minutes, I think, max on them. So you can literally sit down in the evening and watch all eight and then have conversations about it. I feel like we spend a lot of time on the Katie Mike show just with all different concepts of how to be successful in the world. And one thing that we haven't talked a lot about is I've shared my journey a lot of this, but there's a lot of other men going through similar journeys as well, especially with the redefining of the gender roles, what, who is doing what in the house, in the household, as well as who's working, who's not working, et cetera. And I thought having Jason on here was fantastic because he's diving in these deep conversations with men on a regular basis through his groups and workshops, et cetera, and through his TV show that he put together. So today we talked about what it was like to produce this show, Dear Men with Yahoo. Also, we talked about his upbringing. He was a oldest of five children to a single mom. And what that was like as he became a father at the age of 21 years old and his daughter is now 17. So what that evolution has been about for him through fatherhood and manhood for himself. And then just really talking, uh, we talked a little bit about the difference between what men of color go through as well as just white men in general, what he's helping men in his organizations. And then a little bit about, you know, just Going through the experience of men now, it is hard for men to talk about these topics. I have seen it more than once. A lot of times it doesn't get discussed in many hangouts as well. And there's a, it's kind of, I like to call it silent suffering is we're suffering in silence, which is why extreme violence is much higher through men, outbreaks, fighting, like all of these things take place. Suicide rates are increasing for men over the age of 50. You know, it's, complicated, right? Life is complicated and it's going on this journey together as we navigate these waters. It's something I've dove deep into over the last few years for myself, especially having two daughters and how to show up, especially during the me too when that was very prominent in the news every single day and especially since like the political structure of what it entails having these powers at be be able to make decisions that are negatively affecting many other people in the world. I'm talking all avenues here, people. I'm talking about politics, religion, businesses. Every avenue needs to be unearthed and looked at. And to really ask ourselves these questions, why are they structured this way? I think it's very important to ask these questions and these structures will not remain in this way moving forward. So we dove into a lot of that of what, creates a vulnerability inside of men. So please enjoy this episode for the Kate and Mike show of a conversation between myself and Jason Rosario. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. Jason and Kate for everyone listening is not here today. She is a little bit under the weather. So this is a solo episode with myself and the deep vocals of Jason Rosario. <laughs> Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for showing up.
2: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And Kate, when you listen, hopefully you're, you're better by the time this all comes out, but uh wishing you the best.
1: Thank you. So, we got connected via our friend, Noah Levy, who Kate has, we've talked about before on the show. Kate has met new since he was, they were like 15 years old, a camp up in Maine. And then I've been following your work since then. And I think that was back in March. We're recording this in October. So, I've really dove into kind of paying attention to a lot what you're doing and just following you on social media. So, I just, I'm curious about, before we dive into the lives of men and kind of the current work you're doing now, how did you become interested, besides being a man, like working with dudes?
2: Yeah, great question. And the question has a two part answer, right? The first answer is a little bit more esoteric in nature and it's gonna sound super cliche, but I grew up without a father figure in the home. I'm a product of a single parent home, oldest of five kids grew up in the Bronx, New York and in the inner city so that informed my perspective as a man growing up and you know n- not having that influence of a consistent father figure around it just kind of informed me as as a young man and as a boy growing up and made a, and i wound up making a lot of mistakes in terms of just trying to find out what or discover what manhood and masculinity meant for me specifically. So, you know, always being in tune to that. I've always been kind of attuned to my lived experience, if you will, and and how I show up in the world. So kind of growing up with that need in the back of my mind and in my spirit was part of the answer. The other part of it was that in 2016, during Uh, course of a few weeks and months, uh, it felt like Black and Latinx men were under siege, right, by the police with all the police shootings, et cetera, that were happening. And so I wanted to kind of create something that Sort of served as, on one side, the medicine that I needed growing up as a young man, and then also served to help change the narrative around how Black men were depicted in media and et cetera in the news. So The Lives of Men initially was created as a, a, an online platform that kind of served those two purposes. And then, you know, six months later, Me Too goes viral. And then all of a sudden, I find myself in the middle of a public discourse around what masculinity is and what it should be and and all of that. So I've kind of just evolved, but it always had the root in wanting to create something that was of service to me selfishly first, and then packaging that in a way that other people can draw inspiration from.
1: Now... Can I ask about your childhood a little bit? Like, was your dad just not in the picture? Is he in the picture now? Have you seen your, like, what's the story between you and your father?
2: Yeah, so my mom and my dad divorced when I was around three years old. And I'm the oldest of five kids, but my sister that follows me, three years my junior, her and I are from the same mother and father. And he was... Early on, he was around. He lived in Jersey. And so we would do the traditional kind of every other weekend, we would spend time with him and his family. And then all of a sudden, that kind of just stopped, maybe around nine years old, nine, 10 years old. And then I didn't see him again until I was maybe 15 years old. At that time, I'm a teenager. I'm rebelling. I'm like, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, blah, blah, blah. And then it just kind of ebbed and flowed. So he wasn't consistently around. I knew where he was, and I knew I could reach out. But it just got to a point where I just was rebelling and was really angry about it and and just kind of distanced myself. But, you know, I do talk to a lot of men who do have their fathers in in the home and are kind of consistently there. And they say that even though they're there physically, they might as well not have been. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's such a profound statement because you realize that whether your dad was a, a part of your household on a daily basis or not, it really doesn't matter. What really matters is how present they are emotionally in your life and how consistent they are. So, for me, that was a big part of it is that he wasn't present physically, but he also wasn't present emotionally for a large part of my life
1: and is there healing that you had a, that you've gone through
2: yeah, totally you know, so and
1: kind of what has what has that journey been like for
2: you yeah, and I think that's probably the I'm still on that journey. Right. And and my dad passed when in 2009, I was actually funny, not funny story, but ironic story. When I think about it, I was at the time still kind of building my career in finance, and I was about to leave and, and move to Switzerland, to Geneva for a couple years. And we hadn't spoken for a while. And I called him up. I said, hey, dad, I'm, I'm about to leave. I'm about to move overseas for a couple years for work and would love to see you before I leave and just get your blessings. So I wound up meeting him for lunch and I left the following day. And we made amends, you know, we talked and I said, hey, you know, I want to let you know at the time I was already a dad, I had a daughter at 21. So knowing what what I was going through as a father, as a young father, as a man at that time in my life, I could only have empathy for what he was going through, right? A man who came to this country as an immigrant, not having the same access to education, the same command of the English language, et cetera, as I do, I could only imagine what he was going through. So I had a lot of empathy. And, and, and I, I told him, I said, Hey, look, I forgive you for doing the best that you could, given the, the cards that you were dealt. Hmm. And so I left and literally three weeks later, four weeks later, he passed. And it was unexpected. He was sick, but it was unexpected. And when I got the call, I was like, man, you know, it hurt. I came back home, had to deal with that. But I felt at peace because I had made peace with him. And we had gotten to a point in our relationship where we put the past where it was and, and mm-hmm. moved on. And, you know, I was happy about that. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I speak to a lot of men who don't get that chance or th- because of pride or ego don't ever take the opportunity to talk to their fathers in that, in that way. I was able to do that. And I'm, and I'm grateful.
1: And now how does your dad influence you today? Yeah. Now he's um, physically not on this planet. Right. And so,
2: yeah. Negative confirmation, you know, and unfortunately a lot of people that I speak to men who grow up without their fathers and grow up in, 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 in circumstances where they don't have consistent male role models, they learn what they want to be by observing what they don't want to be. Right. So in my, in my case, my dad wasn't around. So I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be that. That's not the kind of dad I want to be. And, you mean well, just not being around? Yeah. Just not being around yeah. or not being emotionally available. I kind of, you know, the, what I didn't get is what I wanted to make sure I gave to my daughter. Right. And, and the kind of man that I thought he wasn't. I wanted to be the opposite. And even using, so my first name is William. His first name is William. I've never been called William in my life, but even to that point, anytime when anyone refers to me by that name, um, I always kind of just, I used to kind of just block it off and say, look, because I wanted to be that much of a different person than my father. So you know, again, it, it, it was unfortunately by negative confirmation that I kind of, that he influenced me the most. And I told him that before he passed, I said, look, you know, whether you realize it or not, you had a big impact in my life and, and he apologized, but then there were also parts of him that I realized that I had that I actually loved. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, that, that conversation I thought was was such a blessing to be able to have right before I left. Hmm.
1: Now, what was your Kind of your upbringing because you mentioned about like masculinity and what was your view of that when you were growing up, like in your teenage years, versus kind of where things have and did it change because you became a dad at twenty one, mm-hmm. and you have one daughter. I have one daughter. One daughter. And just one. You have one child. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like how did, did that change when you turned 21 after you had your first daughter or like kind of talk to me around your 15, 16 year old to 21 and then 21 to like 25, 26 or so?
2: Yeah. Well, look, I, my, conditioning as a young man wasn't any different than a lot of us right 14 15 16 years old your hormones are going crazy you're just now tapping into kind of this this thing in your body that you're like well look i, I kind of like girls and you know you're, you're trying to figure all of that out and then obviously taking cues from sports and from music and from all of the things media entertainment etc that we tend to take our cues from you know that was unlike it wasn't any different than any other young man growing up in terms of being socialized to, to think that I couldn't show emotions or that I couldn't be soft or that I couldn't be vulnerable. And, you know, ironically enough, I would look, even now as an adult, I look back at photos of my childhood and there was a clear point of time where I stopped smiling in my photos, right? Mm. There was, you know, from ages, I don't know, from as young as I, from when I was born to maybe eight, nine years old, You know, I was a chubby kid. I was always smiling and and happy and joyful. And then something happened where I stopped smiling in all my pictures. Only until after I became an adult, did I start smiling again? So, you know, that, that's profound to me. I think that means something. And that's just, you know, a period in my life where I was being taught that a man is supposed to be strong and and stoic and no nonsense. And I think that also had a lot to do with the fact that I was the oldest and that I had to help my mom in many respects, you know, in the house. And it just kind of informed a, a view of manhood that was very, very rigid you know, and, and it's changed significantly since since then, of course, and that's why I do the work that I do today. But, you know, as a young man, 14, 15 years old, even into my 20s, it was it was no different than any other young man growing up. And ironically enough, in college, I was in a fraternity. Right? And so that's a whole nother set of socialization principles, if you will, that you go through that further indoctrinate like your your sense of masculinity and what it should be. So for sure, it, it was intense, but it wasn't unlike anybody else's.
1: And then, like, how has you as a dad changed over time? Mm. You know, from yeah. like being—is it physically? Because you t- mentioned a little bit about just physically being there, unlike you know what your dad was, and you wanted to do the opposite. So, how how has that altered the course? And I want to. I guess you could talk into, especially since you've gone deep down this work in the last, what, five, six years. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It's about five or six years. So let's talk about the last five, six years. Like how has that changed with your relationship with your daughter?
2: Oh man, this is, this is such a, uh, a difficult topic for me because of the challenges that I've had in co parenting my daughter, you know, and there's a lot of guilt there. There's a lot of fear on my part because of, the way that the first few years of, of her life and my life as a father evolved, it had a lot of parallels between the way my dad and my mom dealt with each other, right? Mm. In terms of, you know, her, my daughter and, and, and her mom, her and I left, you know, we, we tried, we tried to make it work, but we, we stopped being together when she was four years old, five years old, you know? And so we've been co-parenting for a really long time. So that was difficult and and I had to kind of go through a lot of growth in in terms of just understanding that my path was different. But how I've changed specifically, for me, it's always been about being a full human being in the eyes of my daughter, right? So, So as long as I can remember, I've never baby talked her. I've never, I've always been very soft and nurturing, but have never underestimated the amount of information that she's able to process and her emotional intelligence, more importantly. So I've always been open and honest with her in terms of, hey, dad is going through this. You know, He's sad. He's happy. He's insecure. He's feeling anxious. Because I wanted her to grow up with a more human sense of who Mm -hmm. I was. And that's not something that I had with my mom, right? Or with my dad, even. I always kind of grown up with a sense that they were superhuman, right? Seeing them kind of go through things and, and survive and continue pushing forward, I was just like, wow, how do you do that? And never had access to them as human beings in terms of understanding what they were feeling. I didn't want that for my daughter. So I've always been very, very aware of that and intentional about being open and honest and vulnerable with her, hopefully with the goal of her then turning around and being open and honest and vulnerable with me as well. And it's helped and it's definitely worked out in our favor She's now 17 years old, she's a freshman in college, and she's like my homie now. She's like one of my best friends. And she calls me up, she's like, dad, what do you think about this? And and we have those types of conversations. And I call her up the same way and I said, hey, you know, JD, I'm, I'm going through X, Y, and Z, what do you think? And we have that conversation, but there's always been a sense of boundary between her and I and that she understands that at the end of the day, I'm her dad, but I'm also a human being within that. And so that's been super important for me as once I became a dad, to make sure that that's the type of relationship that we built.
1: Do you think your like what's your view on fatherhood itself? Like how like are you the guidance, the teacher for your daughter, or are you just kind of a? I remember a, sw- a Swiss beats in your interview you did with him. He said he kind of let, lets his kids do their thing, and then he's there like to set like structure, I guess you could yeah. say in some ways, but or is it like the disciplinarian where it's very authoritative type of relationship? Like, you know, what do you view your role as a
2: dad today? I think it's more the former. It's more of kind of letting her figure it out on her own and being there to provide structure whenever I need to. One thing that I always tell her is that I'm not here to tell you what to do and what not to do. I'm here to give you as much information as I can to help you make as informed decisions as you possibly can. And knowing that you're going to make mistakes, but knowing that hopefully you've made decisions in a well-informed way. You know, and I don't know, I think maybe it's just, again, a product of the way I was raised. I never thought that being an overly disciplinarian type of person was effective because we're dealing with human beings at the end of the day. So for me, it was it wasn't about I don't think I've ever laid a hand on my daughter uh, in terms of disciplining her. It's always been I mean, I've raised my voice and I've kind of been stern, but it's always been like, hey, let's talk through this and let's figure out you've made a mistake. This is what you've done. And if I need to hold you accountable to that, we will and you will be grounded. You will be, you know, suffer consequences. But at the end of the day, I want you to think through these mistakes and think through these things because there will be a time, there will come a time when I won't be around and your mom won't be around to help you kind of evolve and, and, and go about your life. So, yeah, no, I think it's always been very, very, I don't want to call it collegial, but it's been somewhat of a partnership in that regard. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing, if, if I do something wrong, if I say, hey, JD, I'm going to call you at six o'clock on Friday because we're going to go have dinner and I don't call and I show up late then hold me to task to that and so it's it's a two-way street
1: now my oldest is four and then my youngest is just turned 18 months so it is really because kate and i talk about this a lot like if our you know it's like to get right now we're together but we never know what the future holds right so i've never i like the whole fantasy that we're in this forever together and partnership but we don't really don't know we don't have control over that right so What is the, so I just think about now of like co-parenting at four years old and how, I mean, that's just like you, we, I always tell Kate, no matter what happens between us, we're always tied with this human being, you know, these now two humans, right? What has been the biggest lessons that your daughter has taught you?
2: Man. So kudos to you for having that, that perspective, right? Because so many of us have this overly sensationalized idea, overly romantic idea of, what partnership is and and we lose sight of the fact that we're individuals growing in our own ways. And, you know, hopefully we're growing sufficiently enough together that we can keep the union going, but, but we tend to lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day we're individuals. So, so kudos to you. And that's, that's a sobering perspective that not many people have, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's real.
1: I mean, it is, it is, it's like if we have friendships that come and go in our life all the time, right? It's like, partnerships in business or whatever come and go all the time. And to have an expectation that we marry a person or we're not, maybe not married, but partnership with someone. And it's like, that's going to be there forever. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's, I think it's romantic or it's like fantasy is fantastic, but it's like, it's not reality in so many people's lives because we do change. I mean, I'm a completely different human being than I was when we got together, you know, and luckily we're going on that same kind of, adaption and creation path together. And so it helps to kind of keep that spark alive. Right. Mm -hmm. My question was, is like, what has your biggest lesson, like what have, what are the biggest lessons you've learned from your daughter?
2: Humility, man, humility, understanding what to do with pride, when to put it away and when to just say, you know what, for the sake of, of this human being and for the sake of love, as it were, I need to kind of keep pushing forward you know, the hard thing about co-parenting has been trying to kind of help my daughter or instill certain values in my daughter that may or may not be reinforced on the other side. And then vice versa. She comes with a set of values that I may not fully understand or, you know, may not necessarily come from me and, and, and me having to respect that has been a challenge, right? So it's finding that balance. But for me, it's always been the hardest part. We had a really hard, 2017, 2018, her and I, because there was a point in time where I really considered whether or not I wanted to become estranged from my daughter because of the things that we were going through. There was a lot of disrespect, a lot of really just dark time, and I'm glad I pushed through because... It's just a period in time when you think about the the broader scheme of things, but it just taught me how to really just kind of push through and and love for the sake of loving another individual and always remembering that I'm the adult at the end of the day. And, and I have a sense, a better sense of the grander scheme of things that maybe she does. So, but that was difficult.
1: Hmm. And now we have a, can you share maybe one or two tips that have helped with co-parenting? Cause I know there's a lot of the, our audience is mainly probably 90% women. Mm -hmm. So it's from that standpoint, it's just like, what has been helpful for you in like a co-parenting relationship?
2: Yeah. So if your audience is predominantly women, one piece of advice that I would offer women is don't badmouth the father. And what I mean by that is don't necessarily just actively speak out against the dad, but sometimes it's what you don't say. That's just as damaging right? So if there'll be times where your child is maybe upset at the dad, you know, not wanting to spend time with him, but those are times when perhaps step up and, and kind of be the bridge between her dad or his dad, you know, and the child, because it's, it's just as damaging what you don't say at times that help reinforce kind of what the child might be thinking Mm. uh, without the information that, you know, without the full scope of information. So that that's one specific advice for for women who might be co-parenting, but just generally speaking, and this goes for moms and dads, I just say, talk to your kid and be open with them and, and show them what i said earlier show them your human side and and le- allow them to see you sweat so to speak and that does wonders for your relationship because it connects you on a different level you'll always be that child's parent and i'm not asking you to be their friend and your buddy but i am asking you to consider being a human being that they can see themselves in and that they can go to whenever they're feeling whatever it is that they're feeling and kids. Oh. And then the the other thing I would say is don't underestimate what they can understand. You know, a lot of, a lot of us are trying to protect our kids from things that you'd be surprised. I mean, again, don't let them into everything, but you know, be judicious about what you share with them and you'd be surprised.
1: That's I like that. And then also kind of building on what you said earlier, it's same way with dads about moms, you know, it's like not bad mouthing in a cop. I mean, even in our relationship, we're still Kate and I are together. Right. But it's, we, we've made it clear to Penelope, our four-year-old that we're on the same page. Like Kate and I are on the same team. So you can't play games with both of us back and forth. Cause we're usually have the same answer most of the time, but it is Ruby's 18 months old and really understands a lot. Like it's, she can't speak, you know, she's not speaking words, but she, I'm like, go put your shoes in the hallway. And she walks over there and puts her shoes in the hallway. It's just like, she knows what's going on.
2: Yeah.
1: Let's switch switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the lives of men and kind of dear men. The show that took place earlier this year. You know, what was your experience? There were six episodes, right? Was there six episodes? Eight, eight episodes. So eight episodes. How was it? Because you're having very intimate conversations with men and asking a lot of great, like, what was your experience? Because this was on Yahoo News, and you can find all this information. Uh, the links will be in the show notes, but you can find this on Yahoo if you just type in Jason's name, and it's also on Rocco TV. What was your experience like working with uh, Yahoo and producing this TV show?
2: Yeah, what a blessing, man. So I had no experience with media or, or anything on cam- being an on-camera talent before that. My background is in finance. I'm a, I'm a, I like to joke that I'm a reformed finance guy. So me coming to do this work and winding up with a show on Yahoo News was incredible. But I think it's just a testament to where we are in society right now, where there is a need and there's a yearning for conversations with men, by men, about men. Regarding masculinity and what how it's changing, so you know the the conversation was just with Dear Men was just an offshoot of the work that I was already doing with with the Lives of Men, which was the platform that I said that I originally launched to kind of be a resource to men as we navigate manhood, and it's since evolved and, and has taken many different focuses. But you know, it really is at the at its core trying to answer one fundamental question, and that is what does it mean to be a man today. What does that mean? And and that is a question that whether you're a black man, a white man, you're Asian, we're all struggling to answer that question. So for me, I wanted to create something with the Yahoo platform, with the Yahoo show with Dear Men that got to that fundamental question. And you mentioned earlier, I had a conversation with Twist Beats. I talked to Kevin Love and you know, I talked to other guys that, you know, you would think are the epitome of success. But what I wanted to do in the approach... You want
1: to just tell the audience, maybe people don't know who those two guys are. You want to just give them a quick feedback on?
2: Sure, sure. So Kevin Love is an NBA champion. He he plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's played with LeBron James, NBA All-Star. And he actually was very vocal a couple years ago because he had an anxiety attack on the Mm -hmm. court during a game. And so after that, he was very vocal about depression and anxiety and mental health and the importance of it. And then Swiss Beats is a Grammy nominated producer, hip hop producer. He's done work with Jay-Z and, you know, all sorts of different artists and uh, married to Alicia Keys. So yeah, so super successful men. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk to them about things that you normally would not hear them speak about, right? So I wanted to humanize them. And we got conversations going around brotherhood and, and what it takes to, to kind of raise kids and what it takes to make a relationship work with someone that is your equal in the case of, of Swiss Beats. I talked to Kevin Love about his struggles with mental health and what he's doing and how he's using his platform to destigmatize that inside the NBA, right? And in sports in general. So for me, that's what I wanted to create with Dear men. And that's what I'm most proud of is that I was able to give people a glimpse into these men's lives that they normally would not have gotten.
1: Like, how was it for you to, can you talk to me about the production of this? Because there you kind of start off with, a, there's a, like a group of men at the beginning that answer a question almost every episode. Then you do a short monologue and then you kind of go into the interview and then it closes out. Did you script everything? Was this pre-produced for you? Like, what was, was it a lot of your input?
2: Yeah, so we were in the production team. It was me and two other producers. And then we had a senior producer kind of overseeing, the production but the reason we did the show is because of the work i was already doing mm-hmm. so it was heavily influenced by my kind of insights and where i thought the conversation needed to be you know i think it in terms of the questions themselves and the way we structured it we wanted to strike a balance between having voices of everyday men be heard right and so that's why you saw the confessionals in that way we wanted to make sure that people kind of that were watching the show felt themselves reflected in that um and then the other piece with the sit down interview we wanted to kind of then show someone that was of more note um mm-hmm. in that space as well right to kind of help complement the fact that we're all men kind of struggling with the, all this together and we wanted to make sure that we showed that throughout the episodes in the show
1: and then what were your findings with having these men that, because there's so much, I, I was really sick last year in 2018. It was actually, I'm coming up on a year of when I kind of bottomed out with this full body skin rash, et cetera. It's a longer story. But one thing I remember, I would used to go to bed when I was recovering in November or December of last year. And I would be like, okay, if I can just do this one thing tomorrow, I'll be there, right? It's like, I'm making progress. So, was, And then Kate, we're in bed and I'm about to get in bed. She goes, why don't you evaluate your day on how you felt during your day instead of what you achieved? That was mind-blowing to me. So you're speaking to these men that we would that I can look at to be like, if I'm a basketball player, it's the pinnacle of sport to make the NBA or Swiss beats and all of the hit songs that this dude has made and records and you know what he's created in his life like talk to me about this emotional connection between the, our emotions and achievement and in the work of lives of men, is this something that we're trying to kind of not backtrack on achievement, but kind of balance it out in a way to let our emotions come to be more in touch with them. I could say.
2: I love that question, man, because that goes to the root of kind of what I think the platform stands for. And that is, I like to say that I sit at the intersection of self-actualization, identity, and masculinity. And what you're alluding to with respect to my conversation with these men that I was able to do is really change our perception or our perspective around our worth as men, right? Where our worth is tended to be tied to, or society tells us that our worth is tied to what we produce and what we create and what we achieve. And I want to try to change that focus towards how, like you like hate said, how you feel and and you just being right you're being being enough as it were, so that was incredibly important to me, and I think when we look at what I'm calling modern masculinity, I'm thinking about examining ways that men can reassign value to what they value most, if you will. does that make sense? so if you are a dad, but it's you're getting all- clear on what you actually like
1: a substantial value. Right. Like, Cause like a Lamborghini, it's like, it's $250,000. Right. You just buy it. There's no,
2: yeah, no. And that's it. I, I think I tweeted not too long ago. I said, you know, men, our value and our worth is, is tied to the amount of emotional availability that we can offer the people that we love, not the material things that we can give them. And that's it, man. This is how do we redefine what being a man means or what me, being a man means And then detach kind of the material side, the material aspect of it or the achievement aspect of it, because that goes to the root of what we're taught masculinity is. You achieve, you accomplish, you conquer, you overtake by any means necessary, right? And there's this disconnection between the emotional side of things or your spiritual side of things, if you will, that I think is very important to your evolution or to all of our evolution as men. So that's kind of where I want to make sure that my, my work sits is, you know, really helping men identify their senses of self-worth away from kind of the material stuff that we're taught to assign importance to.
1: Hmm. Did Swiss have anything to say regarding? Because I'm just curious about that from like, especially a hip hop perspective. You know, with a lot of the videos and it's just the chains and the bullying and all this. And I'm there's this new show on Netflix about what you can buy and like it's following people around dropping twenty grand on teeth and, you know, it's just like it's in, it's it just builds up that materialistic stuff. So is that something, you know, that we can see as a, I guess, as a culture that will change as we evolve ourselves? I think I just answered my own question.
2: (laughs) No, but I hope so. I didn't get a chance to ask him that. I think that's a, it's a great question now that I think about, I would have wished that I, that I asked that, but I hope so. I hope that we start to towards a a less materialistic society. And I think you're starting to see that with young people and, and with millennials is that they're caring less about whether or not they're even buying homes, right? As an example, they don't care about those status symbols that we right. tend to care for. They're just like, are you a good person? Can I vibe with you? We're good, right? And, and yeah. I don't like that, you know? But then there are other problems uh, around social media that, that create, you know, issues with depression and bullying and their self-esteem, et cetera, with the likes and all that. So that's a whole nother set of problems. But generally at their core, I like to see younger generations being more about look, man, are you a good person? Can I vibe with you? Uh, And if the answer is yes, then let's do it. And less about what you're wearing, what kind of Jordans are you wearing? Where do you live? I think we're starting to see a shift in society in that way.
1: How about men having partners who, these could be male, female partners, male, male partners that are in the case of, you know, it's like making more money than them right? We're in this thing where the male dominant, I don't want to say dominance, it's incorrect, but it's like the men went to work, right? That was the thing and they would provide and the women stay home. And as gender roles are evolving and we're changing. And I I feel like your interview with uh, the guy that worked at CNN about the um, paternal leave was very fascinating. I really like that guy. Just like, it's very fascinating conversation, but just as all of that's changing, because we see this in our business, we see women having very successful businesses, but then they'll want to do something and they'll go ask their partners and they're like, their partners are like, I don't think that's a good idea when it's these women are the ones that predominantly are heterosexual relationships, but it's like the partners are the ones that built these companies and built these businesses. So have you explored this in the lives of men and had these conversations around just women making more money than men in these relationships and those dynamic shift and self-worth and how that's tied into it?
2: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't explicitly tackled that, but I'm going to raise my hand here and, and offer you a little bit of a glimpse into my personal life. I mean, the last, call it six to eight months, have been very much that, where I have always been the self-sufficient guy, always career-oriented and successful and growing, kind of had my own and did for myself and did for others. I've always been that person. And this year has been probably one of the, if not the toughest year that I've had financially. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for my partner, man, I don't know where I'd be, you know, so she has held us down, you know, so shout out to Andrea. I mean, she knows this. And and anytime I I get a chance to give her a shout, I do. And it's, I don't want to say that it's been a huge burden or something that I've had to really struggle with, because I think I'm in the right relationship in that Mm -hmm. we have an understanding there. And you know, it's it's temporary, I'm I'm moving, I'm trying to create something that I think will benefit society and benefit us eventually. So she gets that and she understands that she supports that. And she also sees that I'm not like laying on the couch just watching TV all day. But but I'd be lying to you if it there weren't times where in the back of my mind there's this like, yo, you need to step up, bro, because she's holding it down and you know, what does she think? Does she really support you? Or is she in the back of her mind questioning you? Like there are things that I, there are times where I do question that. And that's just because again, the way we've been socialized is that men have to be the ones to bring home the bacon and lead the charge as it relates to the house. So I've had to kind of make sure that I walk my, put my money where my mouth is right. And mm-hmm. uh, no pun intended, but really walk that talk and, and understand that if there have been times where I do fall back into that kind of gender norms, you know, the man should be this, the woman should be that, I check myself in that regard. Because in other aspects of my life, I've always been very self-sufficient and neutral, right? I, I cook and clean for myself. I know that I need to separate whites from colors when I'm doing laundry, all of that <laughs> stuff. You know, I've, I've always been that guy. But in this instance, it's really, it's really tested me. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I haven't tackled that specifically in, on the platform, but I've definitely been wrestling with that in my own life. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's, it's honestly, like, it's tough. Like, yeah. I'm not going to, it's something that I have, because it's so programmed into the way that the world society sees it. And even though Kate and I are building a business together, there for a long time, like we were on a level of, it, it, it's almost like we were competing against each other. For the same, we're in doing that. We're competing in the same freaking thing, right? It's just, but it is this. And I think now over the past, especially since we had kids of like really figuring out how to make this work and establish the business and relationship that we actually want. It's been a very interesting discovery, but uh, yeah. And just to be, because last year I ended up having to like lay in bed for a month and it's like, just to do nothing. I felt worthless yeah. almost, you know, Absolutely. like to not, and it's not like I was able to take care of myself, but I'd ask for help, and just from that standpoint, it was challenging.
2: Well, let me ask you that question. I don't mean <laughs> to turn the interview around, but go for it. What, how did it make you feel in having to ask someone for help or for something, right? Because I struggle with that as well. Like there have been times where I have to ask again. I've asked to ask my lady, "Look, babe, I need gas money." Like that's such a uh, it's such a humbling thing. So how have you dealt with instances in which you had to do the same? It's,
1: it's, I could not move out of a chair last year for eight days and my skin was peeling off. I can send you some pictures so you can at least get a visual. Like our audience has heard this story before, but like my skin was peeling off. I was in a chair at Kate's mom's house because she was gone and I was just sleeping and meditating and breathing and praying and like anything I could do to just help myself in this moment and for me to text my buddy who I would go through the dialogue of like, okay, they have three kids at home. He can't run and run over here. Like he lives across the street from me, you know, this guy, and there was other friends in the neighborhood. I'm just like, I'm like, okay, I would create all this story around the whole thing. And just to be like, Hey, can you give me some soup? Like I literally can't move. You know, like that's all I want. I don't need much. You know, I know you got it. So, just that has been really excruciating. And I know when I get, when I feel like anxious or my chest gets tight or I get headaches from like overthinking about things that you say now, more now, it's just being like, I got to talk to somebody, whether that's like scheduling an appointment with my therapist yeah. or like whether that is just texting my buddy to talk about our own obsession issues, right? And so that's been helpful from that standpoint. Now it's getting a little bit easier. But I also feel like we, I was on the, the street yesterday with our neighbors. It was two guys and we're sitting there talking and, and we get together like once a quarter with, we just get a bunch of dudes and we go go karting, or we're not like having deep conversations. We're just like doing stuff together. Right. And like last night I was like, we should go snowmobiling this winter, you know, cause it's going to snow in the next couple of months. And, they're like, oh, you know, snowmobiling's like a, it's a trip up there and you got to stay overnight and I just can't get away. I'm like, really? Like we can't get away from one day <laughs> and just chill and hang out to go like snowmobiling together as dudes, which I know that's what we, because we all have kids, right? We were in relationships, like it's busy. And just to kind of create that, it's like how, like just even asking for that time for ourselves from there. I think it's something we still have to work hard on yeah. because women, I see it now. I see it with our kids. Yeah. I see it with our four-year-old. It is a natural piece where they are just together in this community of like the girls just run around in a pack around the neighborhood together, yeah. you know, and the way Kate and her friends do it. It's just like such a natural thing. But for us, as, for me asking for help with dudes, it's like this foreign piece, even though we all want it.
2: Yeah, agree.
1: Talk to me about a little bit of lives of men, like, cause you are, I noticed that you're doing more branding stuff these days, yep. you know, and then you're also curating groups like this as well. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about what that evolution has been like for you.
2: Yeah. So I just been thinking about ways to monetize this idea of modern masculinity and, and this platform that I've built. And if you haven't already, I would actually suggest and I can send you the link. There's a new article on men's health called the man economy. And it's pretty interesting because it kind of outlines what is the industry that's shaping around this conversation around masculinity, right? So the people that are kind of leading the charge, the brands that are leading the charge, everything down to the type of speaker fees that these guys are are charging. Like, it's a thing. And so I'm, I'm wondering, okay, so if this is a thing, what are the industries that I think I can be kind of, that I can work with to kind of help evolve this thing? And so when you think about, and I think I I mentioned it earlier, when you think about how we're taught and how we're socialized to become men, it's usually because it's the media, it's technology, or it's advertising that's kind of sending us these messages. So if those industries have kind of brought us to this point in time where now we're in trouble and we got to figure out how to redefine it, then what does it look like for these industries to Move us forward, so I've started to do a lot of work with brands around messaging and helping them understand modern masculine psychology and behavior patterns as they think through their products, their services, their offerings to make sure that it's in line with what we're thinking and what we're doing as a society. So I didn't work with them specifically, but I'm sure you've heard of the Gillette ad with uh, Mm -hmm. Campbell and. You know, there have been other brands. I think Harry's is doing a lot of work in the space as well. So those brands that are looking to step out in the space, I'm positioning my platform as a consultancy of sorts or as a creative agency that helps them think through these ideas and these products, Um, not just through storytelling, through content, but also with activations as well and events. So I think that's an interesting space because... You know, I evolved as kind of, or started as a, a grassroots kind of men's organization. I still do the workshops and seminars, but now I think the real opportunities to work with brands on this level around this topic.
1: And then what about when we're talking, cause I, I read a lot of, you know, with the Gillette ad, for instance, there's a lot of negative pieces where people will be like, Oh, men are getting soft or in this soft day and age of what it means to be, you know? So what, what have you found in your work? Around that, like, is that coming up in these conversations with these groups and just like the change that's taking place here?
2: Yeah, it's polarizing. You know, it's polarizing because we are dealing with number one, I'm not selling a widget, right? I'm not selling you a phone. I'm not selling you a pair of sneakers. I'm selling you an idea. I'm selling you a set of behavior patterns, if you will, or, or an ideology for what you can be as a man or what we have been and where we're aspiring to go. That's not something that people are going to take easily, right? Especially when you have to unlearn a lot of messages that, you know, that we've kind of picked up along the way from our family, from our friends, from media, et cetera. So that's something that's going to cause tension. But I did have a conversation with the guys at, at Gillette, for example, about the Gillette ad that they put out. And I thought it did its job as an ad. It was an imperfect ad, but it did its job in that if nothing else, it got us to talking, right? And, and that's what I was supposed to do, right? Let's get the conversation going. But what I observed was that there were two things missing in the ad. And, and we, we agreed that those two things w- would have made it a different ad number altogether. Number one was the context behind why the conversation was taking place, right? Like there was just no context. It just came across as very heavy handed. So that's number one. And then number two was, as men, I think we know that we need the how-tos, right? We're tactical beings, Right. So if you tell us, you know, you need to change your behavior, then give us kind of some steps as to what what do I do next to do that? Right. Don't just kind of let leave us in this nebulous space where now it's kind of like I'm not I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to say anything wrong. You know, I don't, want to, I don't want to be falsely accused by someone, so I'm not going to have a meeting with her behind closed doors. It just kind of leaves space for that to happen, right? So we needed a clear set of steps forward, and I think that's what was missing from the ad. So what I'm finding is that, yes, though people are still struggling with kind of, as men, we're still struggling with, to find our footing. It is a conversation that needs to be had. And it's a conversation that I look at as kind of the tree trunk of sorts, right? And then the branches of the tree are, okay, then there's mental health and there's relationships, there's there's finances, there's other parts of the conversation that kind of come back to the fundamental question of what it means to be a man. And that's really what we're trying to answer. Hmm.
1: Now, have you found what it means to be a man different between men of color inside of your organizations versus white men? Or I know there's definitely going to be overlap, Yeah. but there's, I know in our business, what we've seen is it's really challenging. You know, it's like as if women are trying to build a business like men did, it's like butting heads, right? It's trying to do it differently. And that's what we've really established for our company is to run business differently. So how is it for men of color versus like white men in the in is that overlap what it means to be a man different mm-hmm. challenges that they're experiencing in the world
2: yeah there are different challenges for sure and i try to be very intentional about being inclusive in the mm-hmm. work that i do right because ultimately what we're all talking about is being better men being better human beings but i would be remiss if i don't admit that there was a time where some of these institutions of patriarchy or what have you were created when we weren't considered full human beings, right? Whether it's Correct. the political system, the educational system, the economic system, etc. So we'd be naive to think that as you know times have progressed, that those effects don't have compound effects on the way we experience masculinity as Black and Latinx men. So for me, if we are gonna do the job of redefining masculinity, we also have to concurrently look at how patriarchy has marginalized, even with our privilege as men, has still marginalized Black men, right? And what does that look like? So yes, there are parallels, but then there are differences. So I'll give you an example. When we are talking about success and achievement, we're talking about success and achievement within the context of what white America considers that, right? Mm -hmm. And that means you're going to climb the corporate ladder, you're going to become a CEO. Every kid growing up that wants to be a businessman eventually wants to become a CEO. But the reality is is that that's less possible for Black and Latinx men than it is for white men, right? And so why is that? And so let's examine where that disconnect is and let's talk about then, okay, well, that's because there's systemic racism in the system then, is because, you know, there is a disproportionate amount of black men that are targeted by police, right? So are institutional reasons why that isn't as possible for black men than it is for white men. It's not to say that it's impossible, but it just makes it less likely. So for me, that's where there's an important difference to make there in terms of how we're looking at masculinity and how we want to evolve it is that you can't take on any social cause without it being intersectional in my mind. And so this is, this is one example of what that looks like.
1: Yeah. We're having this conversation right after Tyler Perry just celebrated the opening of his movie studio in Atlanta, which is pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. It's pretty cool to, to see that. I haven't, I want to do a little bit more reading on what, you know, everything that took place down there, but it's pretty cool. Do you have anything else you would like to leave the audience with? Cause, and then you can tell people where to find you.
2: I just, you know, I just hope that people are open to these conversations, you know, and again, this is something that people are grappling with on a daily basis. Men are are still kind of very entrenched in kind of in in their own worlds and, and not wanting to step out and say the wrong things at the wrong time. And I think that's just an example of the rigidity around the public discourse with respect to what masculinity is and toxic masculinity and sexual harassment. And I don't necessarily think that resisting that conversation or avoiding it altogether is the answer. I want the audience to, in their own way, in their own spaces, engage people and have conversations and then leave open the possibility of difference. I think that's really important. Difference of opinion, difference of perspectives, etc. That's what I'd like people to see. And then just going forward, you can find me on social media. So I'm on all social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jason, underscore underscore Rosario and at the lives of men. Thank you.
1: What is, uh, what's next on your plate? What do you, is there another dear men? Is it, co- are you going to have season two or?
2: Yeah. So I am, I've <laughs> written a subsequent version of of the show that kind of takes me on the road and kind of hits You know, the Bible Belt, it hits the Rust Belt. And right, you know, I want to talk to men from all aspects or all walks of life to get their sense of what they're struggling with as it relates to this masculinity conversation. So I'm shopping that around and I've gotten some interest. So I'm hoping to bring that to life soon. But for me, the flagship event for 2020 has been uh this wellness conference that i put on last year so i'm working to put that together to kind of bring into a physical space a conversation around wellness as it relates to men right so we mm-hmm. t- think about wellness in terms of going to the gym but i want to create a space where we talk about mind body and spirit so that's my biggest goal for 2020 is to create that and and expand it and elevate it from what we did a couple of years ago
1: that's awesome Well, let me know if there's any way we can help. So thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate actually talking to you now and hopefully next time I'm in New York, we can get coffee or something.
2: No, let's make plans to do that, Mike. Really appreciate the time and hopefully Kate gets better soon. And you know, I I gotta get a chance to meet her as well, so. Thank you. All right.
0: Are you thinking about making a big investment in your business in a mastermind or a high level coaching program or some other big ticket item, but you feel unsure about whether or not it's gonna be worth it, how to make the decision about if it's the right thing for you and how to even plan for that investment. Well, Mike and I have seen a lot of new high ticket offers in the online business and personal development space and we're excited about that. And we also want you to have the tools to make the best decision for you so that this is an investment and not a waste of money. So we're offering a free masterclass there's really not any pitch, it's just a public service about how to decide on and plan for making a big investment in your business. You can get it totally for free over at katenorthrup.com forward slash up level. And we're so excited to share with you three signs that you're ready to invest in a high level coaching or support for your business, a simple fail proof three step process for making the right decision about these investments every time, and the critical shift you need to make in your business finances to make the funds available to invest when the time is right. So if you are looking to make a big investment in your business and you want to do it right, join us for the free masterclass, katenorthrup.com forward slash up level. See you there.